Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. And you can't just say, okay, since people prefer bright colors... That means right. that people always prefer art that has bright colors. Or you can't mm-hmm. say, well, because people prefer consonants to dissonance, that's what that shows that we like consonant music better than dissonance. Because art is so much more complicated. I can look mm-hmm. at a dark Rembrandt painting and love it, even though it's not bright. And I can even find it pleasing and make me feel 
joy, even though it's expressing sadness. Because when we look at art, art can express very negative emotions and make us feel negative emotions. But along with that comes a lot of positive emotions of pleasure. So there's a kind mm-hmm. of paradox of negative emotions in art. We're willing to look at sad and scary and violent things in art that we would run away from in real life. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ellen, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your work because of one of our former guests, David Epstein, who had mentioned uh, you to me in our conversation yeah. as somebody that I should talk to uh, because I had a question for him that he didn't have an answer to. <laughs> so he said, Ellen, you be the first person to talk to you about this. Um, you know, I want to start with a question that I think is always interesting to ask um, people who do creative work for a living, but you're kind of this interesting blend of a creative and an academic, and that is, what did your parents do for work, and um, how did that end up shaping who you've become and what you've done with your life? Well, I came from a family of humanists. My father was a professor of Slavic languages and literature, and my mother was an, a cultural anthropologist, which is a little bit in between the humanities and the sciences, but it was very her work was very qualitative. And uh, so my parents were both academics and they both, uh, there was no science in the family and no social science, except for if you want to call cultural anthropology, social science. Uh, And I actually said I would never be an academic because my parents always (laughs) said, I'm so behind. I have so many deadlines. I got to go work. I can never catch up. And I said, I don't want that kind of life. Uh, Mm. And so I thought I was going to be very different. I thought I was going to have a very different career, but I did end up as an academic. If you want to know how that happened, I'm happy to. I do. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, Well, I always was very interested in art. I loved to paint and I took art classes as much as I could growing up. And when I was a senior in high school, I told my parents I wanted to apply to art school. And they said, first, get your BA at a regular college or university. And after that, you can go to art school. And uh, being a compliant daughter, I thought that was fine. And um, I remember having an interview at Radcliffe, which is the women, was the women's part of Harvard at the time. And the mm-hmm. dean asked me what I was interested in, and I said art. And she said, Radcliffe girls do not have time for art. And <laughs> I still went there, um, but I couldn't take any art. I um, ended up majoring in English literature. And I took art on the side. I took evening drawing classes and I built up a portfolio and I decided that when I graduated, I would apply to art school. And I did. And I went to the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. But after one year, I decided it was just too hard and too scary to be a painter. Um, And I decided I'm not sure I want to be an art teacher uh, of little kids. If I can't really make it as a painter, maybe I don't want to be an artist. And so I decided that I would become a psychologist. At the time, I thought I would become a clinical psychologist. I knew I didn't want to go on in literature because I said to myself, I don't want to write books about books. That's Mm. what my father did. And I just wanted to do something that was more practical out in the world. So I decided on clinical psychology. But then a very fortuitous turn of events happened when I chanced upon a job notice at the Harvard summer school office. Um, This was not a summer job. It was a regular job. And it was a job at a place called Project Zero. And the job was research assistant in psychology of art. And I had vaguely heard of Project Zero, but I didn't know what it was. And I had no idea what psychology of art was. I just knew that those were my two interests at the time, psychology, Mm -hmm. which I decided to become an art. And I ended up getting a job as a research assistant at Project Zero and discovering that you could actually do experimental research on children's development in the arts. And I decided that was really fascinating and that would satisfy me much more than becoming a clinician, a therapist. Mm -hmm. 
And so I um, ended up applying to a doctoral program in developmental psychology. I went to Harvard and all of my research from then on has been on the developmental psychology of art. That means how children develop and think about and respond to art, as well as on how adults think about and respond to art, as well as on arts education and what are its effects on children. And I formed a lab at Boston College where I've been teaching since I graduated from doctoral program in 1978. And my lab is called the Arts and Mind Lab. And that's where Uh we do research on on the arts from a psychological Um, perspective. Okay, I'm so glad I asked you the question about your parents because that that gives me a lot of, of perspective on uh, kind of you know your background and then where you come from. Uh, one thing I wonder is, do you have siblings, and what was the career advice they got if you do have siblings, and how did that contrast? Uh, and also, what age, uh, what birth order are you? Uh, because I always think that, my, okay, my sister's four years younger, and there's mm-hmm. just two of us. And I was brought up to be told I was always told Ellen is going to be the artist in the family. And my sister, Lucy, Lucy is the actress in the family. And my sister wanted to become an actor. I wanted to become an artist. Uh, neither of us wanted to be academics, but guess what? She's an academic. <laughs> <laughs> You're both academics. Uh, theater, theater and education at Empire College, at Empire College in New York City, uh-huh. which is part of SUNY. Yeah. The reason I, I ask that question about parents so frequently is, um, you know, having grown up in an Indian family, we were very clear on the fact that the arts were a hobby, that yeah. there is no career to be made from the arts. Uh, and my dad, much like your parents, talked me out of being a music major. And I'm really glad he did uh, because tuba players are one in every orchestra and you're waiting for somebody to die for a job. To right. Work. So I think that that was good advice. Uh, and at the same time, I wonder, you know, as somebody who is, uh, you know, who works at this sort of intersection of developmental psychology and art, what do you say to parents who are listening to this about creativity in their kids and kids who show these creative impulses and, and start to think, okay, I'm going to go do this crazy creative thing that comes with an insane amount of risk with a situation where nothing is guaranteed and, you know, anything is possible. Right. Well, you know, one of the things that I have spent a lot of time studying is child prodigies in art and mm-hmm. people, who, children who are very, um, talented in an art form have what I call a rage to master you. It's very hard to pull them away from working in their domain of gift. They want to draw all the time. They want to play music all the time. And I, and parents, I did write a book called gifted children, myths and realities. And as a result of that book, parents contact me all the time and say, help, what do I do with my kid? Um, And I always say, you can't stop your child. You should encourage and enable it. Um, that doesn't mean you should tell your child you're going to be a musician and you're going to make a living that way. Um, but yeah. I really believe in letting kids figure it out for themselves, just like I figured mm-hmm. it out for, for myself after a year in art school. I thought, oh, am I going to be able to support myself doing this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, if I had been, perhaps if I'd been more talented, I could have. And I wouldn't want parents to say to their, I think it's terrible if parents say there's no career there. So don't do it. Go into accounting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and also, let me just say one more thing. There's lots of things you can do in the arts that are in, in, that are not just solitary, making it as a as a solitary artist trying to sell your works to to Museum of Modern Art. There's all mm-hmm. kinds of design jobs and website design jobs and um, music production jobs. So kids kids yeah. can find their way. Well, it, it, I got such a narrow perspective in the educational institution that I was in, and it, you know, I was at Berkeley, but I think there was a very clear sort of message that these are the sort of four or five career paths that have been put in front of you. There really are no other options. You become a doctor, lawyer, engineer, management consultant. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, it never occurred to me that, oh, even if I don't get to like make art per se, there are all these creative things I could be doing for a living, like working at, you know, Wired Magazine, like those kinds of things right. just never occurred to us because I think the predominant narrative was that these are the career paths. These are the majors that lead to these career paths. Yeah. And, and the reason I mentioned that is because you're an educator and I graduated from college 20 years ago. Um, it was uh, yesterday. Hidden Brain had a episode on with David Graeber where he talked about bullshit jobs and how universities are pretty much becoming factories for them, not because of the professors, because of administrators. And of course, the people who are suffering for that are students. And as an educator, as a psychologist, as somebody who studied this intersection between psychology and art, um, one, what do you think the role of schools should be in creativity? 
and then also when you look at college and higher education, like what do you think the evolution needs to be to get us out of the mess that we've made? Which I realize we could probably do a whole episode on just that. Uh, okay, let me ask the, answer the first question and then get a clarification about the second. Yes, first question please. was what is the role of creativity? What should our schools be doing about creativity? Yeah. Um, first of all, I believe that creativity is not unique to the arts. Any domain, any area of the curriculum can be taught so that children learn to think creatively in that area. And that's what progressive education at its best, when it's not misinterpreted as totally laissez-faire, that's what progressive education does best, really allows children to make creative discoveries and to learn by doing and not just mimic and memorize what the teacher says. Mm -hmm. So I believe that math can be taught so children learn to think creatively and try to solve problems on their own, and even ones that may not have an answer, um, as, well as, as well as art. So. Mm -hmm. Good education means teaching children to think uh, out of the box. Yeah. You know, as far as the other question, uh, I know you said you had a clarification. So let me turn that to you. Otherwise, I'll ask the question again. So why don't you ask it again? I mean, you did say, okay. how are we going to get out of the mess we're in? <laughs> I know which do well, you mean. Yeah, I think that, you know, like I said, we're, we've got a mountain of student loan debt. The cost of tuition is rising at a rapid rate. And in a lot of ways, higher education, which is this sort of path to a better life, isn't leading to it yeah. for so many people. And you're a professor <laughs> in an educational institution. So is my dad. So it's funny that, you know, we were talking about academics. Surprisingly, I didn't end up in academia. Uh, but I think about this a lot because my dad and I have this argument constantly. He's a he's a science professor. So in his mind, he's like, you don't have a life if you don't go to college. And I know for a fact that, yes, this has given me an advantage. But I also think that I went to school at a very different time, and I'm still riddled with debt because of it. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I, I, this is not really my expertise, but I will tell you mm -hmm. that I believe that we should get rid of all kinds of extras in colleges. You know, we don't need climbing walls. We don't need football programs that lose, lose money. Um, we could pare things down to the basics, which is thinking academics, studying pursuit of knowledge. And if we did that, perhaps the cost would be less. I'm sure it would be less. But um, I also don't think there's anything wrong with vocational schools. If students yeah. want to learn a trade, um, I think that's fine. Um, one of the things that my husband, Howard Gardner, has been studying colleges and universities for the last five years, and he always talks about Olin College of Engineering. You could say engineering is like a vocation in the sense that it's not part of a liberal arts education. But students at Olin College of Engineering, which strives to teach engineering in the most creative way possible, get a liberal arts education along with an engineering degree, which they always say is the best of both worlds. And that's another possible solution if students have a skill they want to learn that's not part of a traditional liberal arts uh, curriculum. Um, mm. it, it's great to find a school that combines the two. Yeah. It's funny because your husband has actually been referenced numerous times on this podcast by multiple guests before. Uh, and this is something I think about a lot because I think it, it took me so long uh, to find my stride career-wise uh, as an adult. You know, I worked a lot of jobs that I hated, got fired from most of them. Uh, and I wonder, as somebody who, who looks at sort of this intersection between creativity and psychology, like what is it that causes somebody to get to, you know, 40 years old, you know, as a lawyer or whatever it is and say, you know what, I hate this job. I don't even know why I do it. Like, how do we end up with such a mismatch between mm -hmm. talent and environment? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a huge amount of pressure on people to, to get a career. And, mm -hmm. you know, you talked about how you felt there were only a few areas you could study in college. Um, I think you said engineering, medicine, law, and management. Well, management consultant yeah. is what you do afterwards. But uh, what did you major in? I think uh, I was an economics major. Okay. Yeah. Well, that will lead to one of these. Good. <laughs> and I got an MBA. So, okay. Yeah. You did all the right things, but you didn't end up a professor. No, I didn't end up a professor and I didn't end up working. I mean, I've started a company. <laughs> so, That's good. Yeah. Um, I mean, does your father, I, I know you're asking, you're supposed to be asking me questions, but how does your father feel about your career? It's been an interesting ride. I think that for them, uh, especially because it was so uncertain for so long, and I lived at home for a lot of time after I graduated, particularly because I graduated April 2009 from business school, uh -huh. they were really unsure of where this was all going. Uh -huh. And I think that getting a book deal with a publisher kind of put their mind at ease yeah. for a little while. 
but I still think they think about the fact that, wait a minute, this is still incredibly uncertain. Yeah. Well, it is uncertain. You, you could have chosen a more certain route, but um, mm-hmm. and you didn't want to. And, uh, you know, America is a country of second chances. I hope it continues to be. And so, you know, that's not there. And students today no longer just have one job. I mean, young people mm-hmm. today no longer just have one job. I've had one job my whole life ever since I got my doctoral degree. But that's just not yeah. the way it is anymore. People find people switch jobs. So I think mm-hmm. there's more flexibility. But why people end up in the wrong career? Well, that is, um, you know, it's really hard to find your purpose. Uh, do you ever uh-huh. Bill Damon from Stanford? I haven't actually. He's a developmental psychologist who runs a center on adolescence, and his focus of his research is on how people find purpose in life. And finding your purpose means you're going to find a, a career that you have that it gives you meaning and that you're really passionate about. And that's not so easy to do. And sometimes it takes uh, discovering that you're in the wrong career. Mm-hmm. What have you noticed uh, as changes in your own students over the last decade or two in terms of what their priorities and values are like? Well, um, I have two kinds of students. I have undergraduates uh, and doctoral students who are coming specifically to work with me. Um, The undergraduates at Boston College, first of all, they've gotten progressively stronger academically over the years. I've been at Boston College since 1978, and the student body today is, is super academically motivated and sharp. Um, I get the cream of the crop because they come to work in my lab. And any students that are interested enough to work in somebody's lab are, tend to be um, the cream of the crop. Uh, mm-hmm. Not just psychology labs, but any lab. So my students are very impressive, and they really um, love to work on issues of the arts because they often have a strong interest in art, but they're not majoring in art. And you know, maybe they wanted to major in art. And maybe they didn't because their parents told them not to. I actually don't have any data on that. But they love the idea that they can combine psychology with art or music. Uh, and my doctoral students, uh, well, you know, they've also gotten stronger over the years. I just, But I've had some really fabulous doctoral students who are really want to work on the psychology of art. And there are very few people in the country that do this work. It's not a mainstream area of psychology. So um, I get the ones that really want to do it and that want to work with me, which is great. Um, but I do have to say that my graduate students, have, you know, they're under a lot of stress because they have to publish during graduate school. Then they have to yeah. get a postdoctoral fellowship and then they have to get a tenure track job and then they have to get tenure. Mm-hmm. And um, I have uh, I'm watching my students go through this now. I do have a, uh, I have some students who have gotten tenure and I have some students who are on the verge of getting tenure and have some students who are on the verge of getting their degree. And I know how much stress they feel. It's actually much more difficult to be an academic now than it was when I was starting out. Because now you can't get a job unless you've published lots of things. Uh-huh. And you can't get tenure unless you've published even more things, plus have a one or two major grants. Mm-hmm. I know I'm intimately familiar with what you're talking about because it's what I grew up with. Yeah. That's why I've lived in so many countries. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, I'd been to nine schools by the time I finished high school. Oh my uh, god! lived in three, four countries: Australia for my dad's PhD, Canada and Texas for postdoctoral work, and then California, uh, where he got his teaching position. Uh, and where finally. did he teach? Uh, the University of California in Riverside. Huh. Yeah. Wow. I yeah. Well, I grew up in in. Ann Arbor, Michigan, and uh, before that, Durham, North Carolina, because that's where my father was moving from job to job. Mm-hmm. Well, so- I think this makes sort of a, a perfect segue to talking about uh, the content of the new book. One thing I wonder, you know, you talked about how impressive these students are. And I, I remember you even talking to Scott Galloway at NYU. We were both joking about the fact that, you know, had we applied to the colleges that we got into, we wouldn't get in today yes. uh, with our grades. And my sister says the same thing about Berkeley. And, and so I wonder, you know, you start this chapter about can this be art with this idea of skill and virtuosity and how much of this is innate and how much of it can be learned? Okay. Uh, I can talk about this uh, a lot because I've yeah. been embroiled in the 10,000 hours myth controversy. I call uh-huh. it 10,000 hours myth. And I know you, David <laughs> Epstein, I'm sure talks a lot about this. Yeah. Um, so, you know, most things in psychology have a strong heritability component. And that's probably politically incorrect to say. You're not supposed to say that. But if you look at diseases or even personality characteristics or mental illness tendencies, there's a strong heritability component. It's not 100% ever. The environment plays a role, of course. But um, 
along comes behaviorism in the 1950s, which are in the mid mid part of this 20th century, arguing that everything is learned and nothing is innate. <clears throat> and that was really overthrown by the cognitive revolution and an interest in neuroscience. Um, but then, and, and there's, and genetics research. But now there's kind of a revival of this. There's a psychologist named Anders Ericsson, and mm-hmm. David Epstein probably talked to you about him. Who? Yep, we've had him as a guest too. Oh, okay. So. Well, you know, he argues that all you need is a huge amount of hard work starting at an early age. He calls it deliberate mm-hmm. practice, but it's really hard work. Um, mm-hmm. And you can achieve the highest levels of expertise, and we do not need to posit any kind of innate talent. Yeah. I've argued against this because I've studied child prodigies and anybody that sees a child prodigy at three doing things that look like a nine-year-old just cannot possibly believe that this kid is just somebody who practiced terribly hard. (laughs) The other thing is what makes a kid practice terribly hard? You can't just pick kids at random and say, you're going to practice five hours a day on this math or this piano because they're going to rebel and refuse to do it. But if you have mm-hmm. a kid who has an, a talent in learning in that domain, mm-hmm. then they have this rage to master that you can't tear them away from. And I think that the rage to master is linked to the innate ability. So yeah. um, well, so it's funny because I've asked some form of that question to multiple people. We had Justine Musk, who's Elon Musk's ex, uh, ex-wife here uh, as a guest. She wrote this really incredible piece on uh, Quora that ended up going viral about the psychology of visionaries because some college student asked, you know, how can I become great like Steve Jobs, Richard Branson, or Elon Musk? And I remember we, we did an incredibly deep dive into what does that take? Like, what does it take to achieve at an Elon Musk level? And she kind of said the same thing. She's like, this is innate. She said, I don't think there are things she's like, I don't want to get all deterministic, but she's like, I don't think that you can learn how to be like this. You know, I like, and I don't think Elon Musk is sitting around reading self-help books to figure out how to build Tesla and and launch rockets. It's more like, I'm just really smart. So I'm going to go do this. Right. And I'm curious and I'm motivated. You know, there may be people who are super smart who are just not motivated and we never hear about those people, but the ones that have, that are super smart in some area and have this rage to master. Those are the ones that we hear about. And that's uh, the rage to master you don't have unless you have a high innate ability in this area that you want to master. It's interesting because I mean, I've spent 10 years working on this project and and suddenly somewhere along the way, it just shifted to an absolute obsession with mastering this, mainly because I got positive reinforcement from people. Well, you know, positive reinforcement is very important. When a prodigy is, is, let's say they're doing music, and it comes easily to them, that's reinforcing. And it makes them mm-hmm. want to go further. And it gives them pleasure. They can maybe even get into states of flow. And you take yeah. an ordinary child, a typical child, is not going to get that kind of pleasure because it's going to be hard. Uh-huh. And it's not going to be, it's going to be frustrating. Yeah. But I mean, I had a ninth grade band director who, or a seventh grade band director, and I've told, said this on the show before. He literally told me the day I picked up the instrument, you're going to make all state band. And from that point forward, I said, okay, you know what, like that motivated me like there was no tomorrow to practice to the point where I drove my entire family insane. Well, because tubas are not quiet. You probably had some talent, right? (laughs) Yeah, possibly. I don't know. Um, Yeah, I I, I always wondered about that, you know, whether it's. People can be motivated and work super hard, even if they're not a prodigy. It's just Mm -hmm. that, and I have no idea what your level of musical ability is. I'm assuming you've got talent. but. if you, there are some kids that work terribly hard, you know, they work terribly hard in school, they, they, they get good grades, but they're not the kind of kids that you look at and say, my God, this kid is a prodigy. This kid is five years ahead of where he should be. Mm-hmm. There's a difference yeah. between the person that works terribly hard and gets good grades and the yeah. person that is just off the charts. Let's look at this question of can this be art? I know that you you know looked at it through the lenses of skill and virtuosity, novelty and originality, expression and individuality, and emotion. Because uh, I, I always you know I, I think that I think of the conversations I have with my dad about things that you know I've created or like drawings or things that show up in the mail in my house. He's like, how can you call this art? This is insane. <laughs> uh, you know, because I think his definition is is somewhat narrow. So I, I, that's why, you know, given that that was the question you started with, like, how did you, you seem to have explored this through a very research driven lens? Right. Well, um, I think that people distinct, uh, people confuse the art versus non-art distinction with the good versus bad art distinction. And I think uh-huh. what your father is saying is this shouldn't be art because I don't like it. <laughs> 
<laughs> but if you want to say what counts as art in our culture, the answer yeah. is everything that you see in an art museum counts as art, whether you like it or not. Uh-huh. And people people say this is art. This belongs in an art museum, even though I think it's terrible. Or it shouldn't yeah. be there. So, and you know, you there's a famous art critic named Art Arthur Danto who, who's no longer alive, and he said there's often no perceptual difference between an object that's not art and an object that is art. But when you put it in a museum, it becomes art and you, it changes the way you look at it. So an example would be Andy Warhol Brillo boxes. Mm-hmm. They look exactly like the kind you see in the supermarket. But when you're in the supermarket, you just pass by them and you don't actually pay any attention to their visual form. When they're in the art museum, you say, why is this in the museum? The artist must have put this here intentionally and wants me to think about it in a certain way. What's the meaning? And also, what's the visual form like? And you pay attention to the surface features and you think about the meaning. And so it changes your experience, just putting it around, putting it in the context of art. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, I remember a friend, I think it was either San Francisco, MoMA or wherever. They said, man, I went to the Museum of Modern Art and there was a porta potty with a, you know, a roll of toilet paper next to it. He's like, how the hell is this inside a modern art museum? Well, you know, I 
would have the same reaction as you did. Um, and I was actually just in Frankfurt and I went to the Museum of Contemporary Art and I couldn't stand the art there. It was piles of trash in the corner, things like that. And I, I know that this is claiming to be art, but I just think that it's a hoax. I just think some uh-huh. contemporary art is absurd and shouldn't be in art museums. But nonetheless, our culture counts these things. Our contemp- our culture does count these things as art because they go in museums and artists make them, people who say they're artists. But, yeah. um, you know, there are studies saying that, and, and you're supposed to, by the way, you're supposed to think about some meaning there, like, who knows <laughs> what, the, uh, yeah. the waste of the human body, the waste of our cl- uh, the, of, of humans in general and how it's affecting our climate. I don't know what the meaning was supposed to be, but uh-huh. not all art is good. And that sounds, yeah. but you know, when, um, when people put found objects in museums, they are there because they're supposed, you're, they're supposed to force you to think of them as art. But mm. people have done studies looking at whether people can agree on what is art. And it turns out that people can't agree at all. So <laughs> one study was done where they, people were asked, yeah. could this be art? Could that be art? And I have this example in my book of could a plastic, um, could, could, let me just try to remember. Um, what was the example? Um, people couldn't agree about whether objects were or were not art. But if you ask a biologist whether a plastic Christmas tree is a plant, they would, 100% of them would say, of course, it's not a plant. But when you ask people whether this piece of white paper could be art or this chair could be art, they don't agree because everybody can imagine a context in which it could be art. Or many mm-hmm. people can imagine a context in which it could be art. So there's a lot of disagreement if you ask people, is this art, isn't this art? But once you put it in a museum, it actually changes the way you respond to it. Well, let's talk about art and emotion. I think that the the part of emotion that really struck me was music, especially as a musician. Uh, I've realized what a role music has played in my life sort of subconsciously almost like when we plan a conference, every speaker had a soundtrack. And even when we produce podcasts now, we started sort of playing with an NPR narrative style episode. Uh, and we that music absolutely makes everything. It, it, we do animated shorts based on the podcast. And it's always the soundtrack that I think changes the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered about this. I, you know, when I watch movies, I think to myself, wow, what would this speech sound like if the soundtrack was not there? Mm-hmm. How different would it be? Right. Uh, it, you've kind of looked at this, you know, like I said, from a scientific lens. So I, I wonder what is that? Like, why is that happening? What's going on there? Well, one of the things we know about the perception of emotion from music is that music mimics a lot of the things we do with our voice uh, when we're speaking to convey emotion. So when we're angry, we speak loudly and fast. When we're depressed we sp- and sad, we speak slowly and quietly. Um, so pitch and tempo are very important ways we show emotion unconsciously, really, with our voice when we're speaking. And music uses those same tools to convey emotion. And that's universal. We're wired to perceive those things in, in the human voice. And so we perceive them in, in, in music as well. Fast mm-hmm. music um, uh, <clears throat> and uh, slow music are perceived as expressing happy versus sad, if I can oversimplify a, a bit, just yeah. like your speech does. And then there's also um, things like major and minor. And in our culture, minor expresses sad. Major sounds more cheerful, and it turns out that from the age of five on, children can make that discrimination. Um, but that may well be learned because they can't do it before five. But but mm-hmm. pitch and tempo, kids can recognize right away as happy or sad. So mm-hmm. music conveys emotion very clearly, and um, and we prefer consonants to dissonance, for example, and that seems to be wired in. Even chicks prefer consonants to dissonance, and consonance is perceived as more pleasurable. And when people listen to music, they report having very powerful emotional experiences, especially some people. Some people have almost transcendent emotional experiences from music. And you actually see this more from music than you do from visual art. Hmm. So we're talking about music, which made me just wonder as a podcaster, what about the human voice? Like, what is it that makes somebody want to not stop listening to somebody like Schenker Vedantam at Hidden Brain? Like, you know, you did that sort of comment of, wow, your voice is made for radio. Are you talking about, you're talking about just the voice speaking, not the voice. Yeah, just the spoken voice. Uh, Like, Ah. what is it that makes somebody's voice so appealing that you say, oh, wow, like you listen to Guy Raz, right? On uh, how I built this or many of the NPR hosts, like. 
Yeah. That's a really interesting question. That is a really interesting question because when somebody has a bad voice, I can't stand listening to them. And I do know, I do know <laughs> people who have very unfortunate voices. They're too high or something and they hurt my ears. Yeah. Um, and so, but I don't know if anybody's actually studied what the components are of, a, of an aesthetically pleasing speaking voice. I think that's a fascinating question. Well, it, it, it's a question that I wonder as a podcast host, you know, I mean, I've, I've fortunately been, somebody has said, the people have said nice things, but I mean, there are people who probably hate the sound of my voice too. Well, you have a very good voice in my oh, opinion. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but it, it's just, like I said, because we were talking about music, I kind of couldn't help but ask that question of, of, oh, well, what about the human voice? Yeah. Uh, what about color? I know you talked about color and form as right. well. And right. this is something I think about because I think a lot about the impact of even my physical spaces. We, we just had a guy named Donald Ratner here who was an architect, and he was talking about how to design spaces that fuel creativity. But I, I really, I, you know, I wonder from your perspective, like, what have you learned about how color and form shape emotion and how we feel? Well, there are very strong reactions to color um, that seem to be innate, you know, respond, but bright colors are perceived as more cheerful. Dark mm-hmm. is more gloomy. Um, and uh, I'm sure there are studies about space when it feels like you're being closed in on. That's that's unpleasant. And when you feel ex- that space is expansive, it makes you feel freer. But I mm-hmm. don't know the research on space. I just know that yeah. uh, the research on color and form shows that there's a lot of innate responses from people in all different cultures about certain colors being more pleasurable and being more cheerful and certain forms being associated with different kind of connotations. So like round forms being more associated with feminine and jagged forms with masculine, round forms with soft and pleasant, jagged forms with anger. Um, These uh, tend to be universal. The very simple kinds of symbolism in forms and color. It's funny because when you say that, it literally makes me think of, oh, I wonder if the shape of the buttons on our website makes them less compelling to click on. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that you can do studies about which shapes people prefer to click on. I, I don't wow. know any such studies, but I'm sure that people do have responses to the visual pleasingness of the website. Oh, yeah. I, I know people who said literally changing the color of a button when they've done tests will dramatically increase the conversion mm-hmm. rate. Mm-hmm. Would not surprise me at all. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd never thought about that, which makes me, you know, you've, you've given me a bunch of work to do. <laughs> okay. You can't just say, okay, since people prefer bright colors, that right. means that people always prefer art that has bright colors. Or you mm-hmm. can't say, well, because people prefer consonants to dissonance, that's what that shows that we like consonant music better than dissonance. Because art is so much more complicated. I can mm-hmm. look at a dark Rembrandt painting and love it, even though it's not bright. And I can even find it pleasing and make me feel joy, even though it's expressing sadness. Because when we look at art, art can express very negative emotions and make us feel negative emotions. But along with that comes a lot of positive emotions of pleasure. So there's a Mm -hmm. kind of paradox of negative emotions in art. We're willing to look at sad and scary and violent things in art that we would run away from in real life. Yeah. Well, let's talk about judgment. Uh, I think that you started with this whole idea of effort bias, which as I understand it, is that we tend to have bias towards things that people have put a lot of effort into. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so for example, maybe a perfect example probably is like, oh, this author who I've you know enjoyed reading his blog has spent years writing this book. And even though I hate the book, I feel biased towards it because they put so much time and effort into it. Which book is that? Oh, I'm just using that as an example. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So there is definitely all things being equal. If you ask, if you tell people this work took X huge amount of time, this work was made very quickly, which is the better work? People tend to say the one that took a huge amount of time. But actually, you can flip it around. If you say, you know, sometimes talented people can make things very quickly, and then you give them the same problem, then they actually go for the one that just took a little amount of time. Um, And this is done in a very controlled fashion so that half the people get the Everybody gets the same work, but half the people are told this one took a lot of time and half are told this one took almost no time at all. And Mm -hmm. those instructions can change the way you evaluate the work of art. But if you preface it with the creativity talent prompt, sometimes people can do talented people can do things very quickly. Then people go for the one with lack with less effort, which is, you know, when you see Picasso painting something really quickly that uh, is is just comes out amazingly after six, 30 seconds. Yeah. You love it because you see that he has this incredible facility and you admire talent. 
So it makes me think of, of different things, you know, like, so we all have certain, you know, biases when it comes to, to music, right? Certain judgments. Like I had a friend who was like, I hate Dave Matthews. And I was like, well, I think Dave Matthews is brilliant. Like, I think, yeah, I'm not a diehard fan, but I think his concerts are brilliant and I really enjoy his music. And so it, when you look at art and judgment, like, what is that all about? Interestingly, just yesterday, uh, my colleague, Nat Rabb and I had a paper accepted in New Ideas in Psychology, which we called Objectivism is Here to Stay. Um, because, uh, People believe that, I'm sorry, it's not called that. It's called object, would you like to know what it's called? It's called <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a paper showing that people do not believe that judgments in art have any objective truth value, even though they argue fiercely about their disagreements, just as you were saying, yeah. um, you did with people who don't like Dave Matthews. People get really upset when somebody that they're close to that they care about hates the work of art that they love. But if you ask people, if you ask people, do you think that when when so and so says this is great work of art, and yeah. somebody else disagrees, is one of them right or one of them wrong, or is it just a matter of opinion? We just did three experiments trying to push people to become objectivists and say one of them is more right than the other, and we could not do it, no matter how many manipulations we did. Uh, people believe that aesthetic judgments are just like saying yay and boo. They're just uh -huh. like saying I like chocolate and you like vanilla. But then why, the puzzle is why do people argue so fiercely? And our, our hypothesis is that it has something to do with our identity. Mm. And it's important to my identity that I like certain kinds of art and that I don't like other kinds of art. So for instance, it's important to my identity. I'm talking um, about me personally now that I like Rembrandt and that I don't like Thomas Kincaid. I don't know if you know who Thomas Kincaid yeah, is. I do. I know, okay. Calendar art type schlock. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if, if somebody that I really <clears throat> was close to and had yeah. a bond with, like say it's my husband, suppose he said to me, I actually prefer Kincaid to Rembrandt uh -huh. really bother me. And I would feel that I had to defend my position and I would be upset at his because my identity the identity of somebody that prefers Rembrandt is very different from the identity of a person that prefers Kincaid. And I don't want that clash of identities in my marriage. So I think that what our aesthetic tastes are, and by the way, my husband certainly does not like Kincaid more than uh, <laughs> Rembrandt. But, um, I think that we argue about aesthetic judgments because it's part of our identity. But if you actually push people to the wall and get them to get them to think about whether they believe that there yeah. is any kind of tr objective truth value, they end up saying no. Now we haven't done this study with experts and I'm really uh -huh. interested to see whether experts actually say, yes, there is objective truth value because they spend their life, you know, making judgments and, and arguing fiercely about that they're right. So maybe they do actually believe there's some objectivity, but it's extremely hard to prove that one mm -hmm. work of art is better than another. What's the likelihood, uh, if you're related to somebody, for example, does it increase the likelihood that you're going to have similar aesthetic judgment? So, you know, for example, a sibling, uh, which, cause I, I keep thinking of this moment, uh, when I was a kid, uh, this was when I was a teenager and this was when friends came out and that theme song from friends by the Rembrandts, I, I thought it was, you know, one of those things I just wanted. And this was before CDs and MP3s. And my sister got an allowance. I took her to the mall and I persuaded her to buy this tape, even though it had no other good songs on it. I basically just fed her lines of bullshit about how the whole album was amazing. And to this day, she still reminds me of that. Uh, so I, I wonder, you know, what is it, does the fact that you're related increase the likelihood that you're going to agree when it comes to aesthetic judgments on art? I think it really has to do with there. I think environment plays a strong role. Yeah. How you're brought up, the kind of culture, your, the subculture you're brought up with really shapes your aesthetic taste. Hmm. And so if your sibling is brought up with you, you're, you're probably likely to have the same taste. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that you might on very minute distinctions, like I might prefer to Lear to Hamlet, my sister might prefer Hamlet to Lear. And that's, those are, I would say, very um, minute distinctions as opposed to preferring Rembrandt to Kincaid. Right. I think the big distinctions are, are culturally determined. So I have a, what probably is a really weird question uh, about what might be a lot of cognitive dis dissonance. So look, my first album ever that my dad handed me when I was five years old, he gave me a Sony Walkman and it was Michael Jackson's Thriller. And I played that thing until it stopped working. <laughs> and Michael Jackson was something that we were raised with. It was kind of like, and I don't think we were alone in that we looked up to this person 
And of course, mm-hmm. you know, when the Leaving Neverland documentary comes out, you can't think to, you, it, you kind of like, wait a minute, this guy was like this brilliant artist and the cognitive dissonance of that um, is yeah. kind of you know, hard to wrestle with. So I, I wonder, you know, from a psychologist's perspective, like what, what do you, I'm just curious what you have to say about that. Well, you know, there's a, a case that's just been in the news about the Nobel Prize in Literature being awarded to Peter Hanke, who is somebody that praised Slobodan Milosevic. Mm. Or was it Radovan Karavich? It was Radovan Karadzic that was his hero, who was considered a butcher, a uh, war criminal. Um, and so Peter Henke has these terrible values, most people think, and yet he got the Nobel Prize. And so there's all this debate about, does, does the Nobel Prize have to take the person's values into account? Uh, or is it just on the basis of literary merit? Yeah. And the Nobel Prize, people say, this is on the basis of literary merit. The interesting question to me, the psychologically interesting question, is when I read Peter Hanke, I've never read anything by him, but will I be influenced by knowing his uh, what his values are and will it make me like his work less? Well, it's funny because I've, you know, I've included Michael Jackson in previous books that I've written that were already published and gone to print. And even when I was thinking about songs for speakers as, you know, we're, we're planning our conference, I was like, oh, wait, I can't use a Michael Jackson song anymore. But not because you don't think he's good, but because no. you think of people. Because exactly. Because he shouldn't be honored. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really what happened with the Nobel Prize. People felt that he shouldn't be given that honor. But mm. we've done some studies of this to try to show that people's aesthetic responses are going to be, become more negative because the moral evaluation of the artist seeps in to the aesthetic evaluation of the work. But we actually have not been able to show that. We have kept, we keep finding that people make a, a separation. Yes, the person did terrible things, but that doesn't change their evaluation of the work. Well, I think Spotify had said, you know, when the R. Kelly documentary came out, downloads of R. Kelly songs actually went up. Well, there's that phenomenon too, which is I want to see what this guy is really like because now he's yeah. a, such a, even more of a celebrity. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that people don't mind uh, there are some people who will boycott Woody Allen films, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they don't wish they could go. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go to this final piece about what art does for us. I mean, I, I think you talked about, you know, boosting grades, making us better humans and improving well-being. Um, what has your research shown about this, particularly with children? Does it boost grades? No, it does wow. not. There is a belief that it does, and it, it really drives me crazy because no matter how much research is published showing that it doesn't, people still want to believe it. So there's a lot of correlational evidence that makes people think it boosts grades. For example, kids who um, uh, are taking a lot of art in high school or music tend to be good students, but that doesn't mean the art is making them good students, nor does it mean their good student status is making them take art. There's all kinds of reasons for that. They may come from families that value both academics and the arts. They may have high energy and are able to do both. Um, they may go to schools that good schools, the top students are going to go to the good best schools often. Um, and schools, goods, very good schools often have strong arts as well as academics. If you look at the experimental studies where you take people, just think of a medical experiment where you randomly divide people into two groups and you give one aspirin and one Tylenol and you test their pain before and after. Uh, that's the kind of experiment you really have to do with art to find out if it, art education to find out if it raises test scores or grades. And the studies that have done this and have tested kids' academic achievement prior and then after a heavy dose of art versus a heavy dose of something else have shown that there's no distinction, that the art kids do not grow higher in grades. And you know what? Grades are not in things that art teaches. Art Kinds of things you learn in art or music or theater class are not the kinds of things that are picked up in a, on a math test, on a uh, SAT score, uh, whether verbal or math. And so there's really no reason why art should raise academic performance. I think that what what, what we went on to we we published results on this, doing meta analyses, uh, synthetic, synthetic, quantitative, synthetic reviews of lots of research that other people had done on this, and we said, look, there is no effect here, and People got really, really angry at us, and they said we should never have asked the question because we might have gotten this answer. And even if we had asked the question and gotten this answer, we should have buried our results because <laughs> it's going to hurt education in the arts because superintendents and school boards are going to say, well, if it doesn't raise test scores, let's get rid of it. Yeah. And we argued, let's look at what the arts really do. 
Mm. And we've published three books with the title Studio Thinking in the title, with the word Studio Thinking in the title. Try to argue on the basis of observational evidence that what the arts are teaching kids are important habits of mind that artists use. And these are habits of mind that we all should have, whether or not they raise test scores, Mm. learning to look really carefully, observational skills, learning to make evaluations, learning to engage and persist over long periods of time or um, learning to um, envision, to generate mental imagery. Yeah. Um, just a few of them, but um, these are habits of mind that are in good arts classes are engendered by teaching. Yeah. And we should think about what the arts really teach rather than just assume, oh, well, they're going to make you better at test scores because yeah. they don't. And there's no theoretical reason why they should. Well, it's funny you mentioned, you know, being able to envision because we have a design firm that basically they they produce, you know, uh, they're amazing. They do all of our, our graphics. And, and one of the things that's in their tagline is if you can describe it, we can create it. And I went and looked at all the things they've had created by other clients. And I was like, wow, people really suck at describing things uh, because, you know, our brand is highly creative. And I remember emailing the CEO. I was like, can you do all of this? He said, yeah. And what I looked at, when I looked at the contrast between the way that we've used them versus how many of their clients use them, I realized that what it actually took to really leverage their skills was the ability to describe what you want to have created uh, more than, hey, we want to do this. You know, when we do an ebook, it looks nothing like a free ebook. And so I, I think that that was really kind of an interesting observation for me to see that. Uh, and I realized I was like, oh, this is the actual useful thing. Even though I can't draw, teaching myself how to draw for 30 days actually taught me how to describe the things that I wanted to see come to That's life. That's so interesting because one of the things we argue is that learning how to draw teaches you how to envision. And I think that you, you, you could describe it better because you could imagine it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that we we kind of dispelled the notion that it makes us a better human being, given the people that we just talked about. Uh, so I don't. Yeah, think- I think that's another thing. People say, "Oh, art Im- causes empathy," but <laughs> if you look at artists, are they the most empathetic people no. in the world? There's actually the only way in which I think art might cause empathy, and I don't think we have enough research on this. Is I think that stories may put us in the shoes of other people and may actually be able to change our attitudes towards more empathy, mm-hmm. but on this has been exceedingly weak. Um, and here's a typical example of a study. Children are read a story about a very good boy who helps people. And other children are read a story about the same boy, but it doesn't involve helping. And after the, the helping story, children are more likely to pick up dropped pencils that the experimenter has accidentally let fall than after the other study. And so this is touted as, look, literature causes empathy. But this is a weak study because it's kind of obvious that the kids are being indoctrinated to help, 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 yeah. and they do. And it's a very low-cost kind of sacrifice to pick up some dropped pencils. And mm-hmm. what we really want to find out is whether you, if you read a narrative, say, about people living in poverty, and you start out with an attitude of blaming the victim and people who are in poverty have just not pulled their uh, pulled themselves together and made it. Um, it maybe it will change your mind. Maybe it will change your attitude because it helps you feel their feelings. And that research actually really remains to be done. So it may be that some kinds of um, narrative arts may cha- may be able to change attitudes. Yeah. Now, what about the research on well-being? Because I know I did a section in my own book on on you know well-being, at least based on the white papers I found. And I had James Pennebaker at UT Austin has done yeah. work on writing. And so I, has, has yours showed that? Because I'm thinking to myself, please, for the love of God, don't tell me that it's proved not to be, because then I have no, a whole book actually, out there saying it is. There's actually some evidence for art improving well-being. Um, making a drawing, engaging in the visual arts improves mood. Mm-hmm. James Pennebaker has shown that keeping a journal and working through your problems actually improves improves psychological, has psychological benefits and also health benefits that are based on less stress. Mm-hmm. So, and, um, one of my, uh, and the, the work on drawing and improving mood has been done, um, by my former student, Jennifer Drake, who's now at Brooklyn college. And I have another former student, Talia Goldstein, who's, um, shown that engaging in drama and role play actually does help improve perspective taking which is important for empathy. Um, and I think that has to do with well-being. And then there's all kinds of studies about how listening to music calms you down, lowers your stress level, and can even lower pain. So, and then here's one final thing about well-being in art. It, art gives us meaning. Mm-hmm. And if you have meaning in life, you have more well-being. So when you read a Greek tragedy, you don't just feel sorrow. You also think about it and gain some perspective on life and feel like you have 
uh, more of a sense of meaning. Uh, and so that's well-being too. Hmm. Wow. Uh this has been really, really, really eye-opening and uh, thought-provoking. I love conversations like this because I think they they make you think. You know, there's no, there's not necessarily like, okay, go do this, this, and this. It's not the practical sort of takeaway, but it's such a deep exploration of a you know psychological perspective of art. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable. Yeah. And by unmistakable, do you mean? You, you don't mistake them for somebody else? Um, well, it's funny because, you know, I've been asked to define this term so often. Um, I had to define it for my own book, but uh, the uh, way I define unmistakable is that it is something so distinctive that nobody else could have done it but you. Okay. Well, you know, everybody has is a little bit unmistakable. I just read a study in today's New York Times about how People move in unmistakable ways. Each individual moves slightly different from from each other individual, and you can recognize people by how they move. And that that's not a particularly uh, high accomplishment, but I think that there's a lot of distinctions between people. So I don't know if I would say, I think maybe what you're saying is more than that. I think maybe you're saying what makes people stand out so that they're doing something really um, impressive that nobody else could have done. Is that more like yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. I think absolutely. I mean, it, it's yeah. funny because I've gotten so many different answers to that question. I mean, so much so that I tried, wrote a book about it and people have said, hey, can you do me a favor and compile all the answers that your guests have ever given you to this question? Um, well, I would say, uh, I would come back to rage to master. People yeah. who have a rage to master something and really um, are passionate about something usually do something that is very impressive and mm. is unique. I love it. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Um, where can people find out more about you, your work, your books, and everything else that you're up to? Okay. Well, I have two websites. One is ellenwinner.com and one is um, howartworks.com, which is about my latest book. Um, and if they go to either one of those, they can find out more. Actually, uh, I think my book website is winner. Uh, I can't even remember it. I think it's winner. It's winnerhowartworks.com is my book website. And winner, um, ellenwinner.com is my regular website, which has a link to my How Art Works hmm. website. Amazing. And for everyone listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave Podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. 
the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.